Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Today's message is part three of a three-message series looking at portraits of Jesus in the book of Revelation. The title of today's message is Jesus, Our Champion, and the text comes from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. These portraits that we've been looking at over the last three weeks are meaningful to all Christians in times of distress, revealing and reminding us that Jesus is our protector, Jesus is the worthy lamb, and finally, Jesus is our champion. Do you have hope inside of you? That's the question I have for you today. Years ago, an S-4 submarine was rammed by a ship off the coast of Massachusetts. It sank immediately. The entire crew was trapped in a prison house of death. Every effort was made to rescue the crew, but ultimately it failed. Near the end of the ordeal, a deep-sea diver who was doing everything in his power to find a way for the crew's release thought he heard tapping on the steel wall of the sunken submarine. He placed his helmet up against the side of the vessel, and he realized that it was Morse code being tapped. And so he attached himself to the side, and he spelled out in his mind the message being tapped from within. And it was repeating the same question over and over. And the question was this, is there any hope? And that's what our planet is asking for. Is there any hope? Will it get better? Will life always break down the way it seems to? And my question for you today is what is the message that your life sends to those around you? Are you sending a message of hope, true hope? Look at yourself for a moment. Think about who you are. And what do you see? Do you see hope in your own life? Perhaps you see everything but hope. Well, today you can be filled with the greatest hope in all of existence, Hope in the promise that Jesus will bring justice and eternal life to any who believe in him and follow him as Lord. You see, the Christian holds to more than a wish for better days in the future, but we have hope, a promise of a bright future in heaven. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, these words, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Do this in gentleness and respect. Has an interesting verse asking us to be able to give a defense for the hope that is in us. And it makes me want to ask the question, do people see hope that is in you? Or do they see something else? Do you see something else? Could it be the case that most people do not see hope in Christians today? Maybe they see legalism or judgment or fear or pessimism or even anger. But the Bible asks us always to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks why we have hope in us. So we better shine out with hope, right? Perhaps you're listening right now feeling like hope is far away. Maybe you've walked the dark night of the soul for so long that hope is a dream that is always just beyond your grasp. Claire Both Loose says this, There are no hopeless situations. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. And Pastor Glenn Peckham writes these words, 
for Christians saying, we are not optimists, we're not escapists, we do not trust in the myth of progress. Christian hope is uniquely shaped by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and by the promise of our own future resurrection. The hope of Christ resounds forth from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, with Jesus, our champion, at the open door of heaven, defeating the enemies of God and securing God's people for eternity for an eternity of victory. Let's read from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. The text reads like this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one else knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do not lose heart. Do not grow weary. Do not lose hope. Jesus, our champion, is coming. Jesus, our champion, already possesses the final victory. This is the biggest and first idea that I want each of us to grab a hold of and refuse to let go of. If you're going to be stubborn about anything in life, this needs to be it. That Jesus holds ultimate victory in his hands. Revelation tells us this, that in Jesus there is ultimate victory. That's the first thing I want us to think about today. I like these words by Eugene Peterson. This world is full of catastrophe, personal and pervasive through every inch of creation. And the only answer to catastrophe is salvation. And salvation is what rings forth from Revelation chapter 19. Jesus is salvation. He is our champion. He is the answer to the catastrophe, to the hopelessness that we all face. One of the great callings of the book of Revelation that Revelation puts upon us is to persevere. Keep going no matter what. No matter how dark your days look, no matter how much it seems like evil wins, no matter how powerless you feel to bring about victory, persevere. The moment we persevere towards, the moment that we're persevering towards is described in Revelation 19, that great moment when heaven stands open. And we've already read the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. He's our priest, tending and protecting and, and walking among the church. And we've read about Jesus, the worthy lamb, in chapter 5 of Revelation. He's the only one able to open the scroll of our inheritance. And now we've read Revelation 19. And the description is Jesus, the warrior king, Jesus, our champion. It's a picture of the enemies of God assembling their armies to make war against the lamb. But they forget that this lamb is a lion. And Revelation 19 describes a fierce and furious Christ. 
He is not to be toyed with, because he is the deliverer of victory. Every inch of his description radiates with ferocity, strength, and victory. The enemies of God are ready for battle, but battle is not even up for contest. Jesus ends the games of his enemies in a heartbeat. We must see and hold on to the ultimate victory that Christ delivers to his people. Let's look a little bit at the description here. Because it's a mighty description of Jesus. It says, Heaven stands open. Make of it what you will. But this is the moment of history that we dare not miss. When the door of heaven is thrown open, the barrier that separates our earth and God's heaven is broken, and the enemies of God are not the ones who achieve this. Jesus is the one who opens heaven. And with this opening, he declares, Enough! No more games, no more waiting, no more time left for the enemies of God. Heaven stands open. Another piece of the description we ought to pay attention to is the rider on a white horse. Jesus is riding a white horse. This horse uh, symbolizes purity. And kings and generals in Jesus' day and in the Roman Empire rode fine white horses to show their power. And Jesus is riding such a horse now to show his ultimate authority. Another message is being sent here, though, that we might miss. Because the Romans, though they ruled the world when John was writing the book of Revelation, they had a nation that they feared, and that nation was the Parthenian Empire. First of all, you should know the Parthenian king actually had people address him as the king of kings. And he famously rode a white horse. And the Parthenians had a division of mounted archers who rode white horses. So when you have Jesus, the rider on the white horse, who is the king of kings, leading an army from heaven, all mounted on white horses, well, you have this picture of the Parthenians riding against Rome. And the Romans feared the Parthenians, because the Parthenians were, up to this moment in history, the only opposing force, only opposing nation, who defeated the Romans on Roman soil. The Romans were known for projecting power. But they were fearful that the Parthenians would come back and disrupt the peace that Rome boasted about. Another description of Jesus is that in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus stands ready at the open door of heaven with purpose. He comes to judge and to make war. The time is up. Satan can no longer claim a pretend victory. Judgment and war are scary terms. This is because our judgment and our wars are flawed. We do not have the authority to truly judge, not with any form of real justice, only the best justice that we can render. And our wars, no matter how just, no matter how well intended for peace or to prevent evil, our wars still produce pain, destruction, and when our wars end, we still are left with brokenness. Jesus, in his perfect righteousness, brings true justice through judgment and war, and at the end of it all is victory and wholeness. Jesus is described with eyes full of fire, meaning nobody escapes the sight of Jesus. He doesn't miss anyone. Everyone is brought under judgment, and no one escapes this final battle of Armageddon. Nobody escapes who's an enemy of God. The victory is complete. On his head are many diadems, Jesus is King of Kings and Lords of Lord and Lord of Lords, so it's easy for us to understand why he'd wear many crowns, many diadems. But Jesus is wearing many crowns shows us that he is, he is his true and absolute authority, 
Now, we're, we're seeing his true and absolute authority as opposed to the imitation authority shown by Satan and the beast. These enemies of God wear crowns earlier in the book of Revelation, and we'll read these verses now. Revelation 12, 3 is a description of the dragon. We, we think of this as Satan. It says, another sign appeared in heaven. It's Re- Revelation 12, 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. So, a lot of crowns, right? And Revelation 13.1 says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous, blasphemous names on its heads. What is one to make of these beasts and dragons? Ah, oh, it's confusing imagery, right? But we are told they wear crowns. They possess power. Uh, maybe it's temporary power. We should really know it as false power. It's power that looks impressive. I mean, seven is a number for per- perfection. He's got seven crowns. He's got perfect power, right? Not really. It looks impressive up until the moment the door of heaven is opened. And Jesus steps out wearing a multitude of crowns. The show is over. The real king has appeared. Never forget who wears the real crowns. No matter how powerful the rulers of this world appear, Jesus is the one wearing many diadems. He's also described wearing a robe dripped in blood, or dipped in blood. This is an image that bothers a lot of people, especially those of us here in the West. We're not too comfortable with blood imagery like that. And there are those who would say, well, the, the, maybe the blood on the robe is the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross. And he wear, he's wearing a reminder of redemption. And yes, you could read it that way. But it's better to read this blood as the blood of the enemies of God. Blood from Jesus treading the winepress of God's fury. And it's important for us to see the fierceness of God's victory. It is complete. Isaiah 63.3 reminds us of this uh, Messiah treading the winepress. And it is a fierce description as well. Isaiah 63.3 says this, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. And I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And the, their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Now, I can understand if you hear these words and say to yourself, I do not like this picture of Jesus. It's, it's not pleasant. But think of the alternative, because this is judgment we're talking about. If God tolerated evil and he let it go on forever... How would that be loving? How would that be something that we would be comfortable with? If if God just let evil seem to win forever. But righteousness and justice call for proper recompense on evildoers. They cannot run away without justice forever. That too would just be so unbearable. So we're seeing true justice being rendered here. And yes, it's not pretty. But it's needed. Jesus is described as striking down the nations and ruling them with an iron rod. That image of the iron rod tells us about Jesus' strength. Every inch of this whole description of Jesus in Revelation is full of power, authority, and justice. This is Jesus, our champion. His victory is complete. Isaiah 42 verse 13 says this, The Lord goes out like a a mighty man, a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. 
Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I have two descriptions there. One is the fierce warrior man, and one is the, the, the mighty God who rejoices over us. And I think part of that depends on which side you're on when Jesus stands in the open door of heaven. If you are on the side of Christ, it's a joyful thing. And if you're against Christ, it's a scary thing. Now, I've skipped over some of the details of Jesus in the book of Revelation in chapter 19, and this is intentional. Our text mentions four names of Jesus, and these names tell us not just that Jesus' victory is ultimate, but he tells us of the quality, the character of Jesus' victory. These names tell us the kind of victory that Jesus brings. So he has four names that are listed, and we're told that first name is that Jesus is faithful and true. How do we know that the judgment and war that Jesus brings about is right? Well, it's in his name. He is the one who is faithful and he is true. You see, you and I, humans, we're not all that good at detecting truth. Sometimes we find truth, but it's often something we struggle with, especially in this day and age. It's a funny story talking about how hard it can be for us to see truth sometimes. In 1975, several years before his death, Charlie Chaplin entered a lookalike contest of himself, the Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin Lookalike Contest. It was in France, and he thought he was a shoe in to win because he was actually Charlie Chaplin. But he didn't win. He came in third place. He couldn't be identified as Charlie Chaplin himself. See, the reality is we need more than just our own truth detectors. We need the truth himself, Jesus, the one who is faithful and true. The second name that's revealed in this description of Jesus is, is a name, actually, that we don't know, a name that no one knows. And this is the most puzzling of all the names for obvious reasons, because we don't know what it is. It's, it's just something that's the unknown name. And, and, you know, Bible scholars, they're in disagreement over what to make of this name. They wonder if the name is maybe revealed later as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I, I don't think it is. Why tell us that Jesus has a name that no one knows just to reveal it as King of Kings and Lord of Lords just a few moments later? There's another place where an unknown name is talked about. It's in Revelation 2.17, the letter uh, to the church uh, in Pergamum. Uh, we're told that those who persevere, those that conquer, will receive a new name that no one knows except those that receive it. This is the promise for all Christians. See, all the promises of the seven letters of, to the churches in, in Revelation are really promises to all of the church. So what are we to make of these unknown names? The unknown names given to the church and the unknown names given, the unknown name that Christ has. I remember my undergraduate professor in his course on the book of Revelation, he mentioned that names give people power. In the ancient world, a person of, of power or of authority might rename a servant or a slave. It shows a change of allegiance or of authority over a person. And God is in the renaming business. He renamed Abram and Sarai, and to Abraham and Sarah, when they were to become the parents of his holy people, the father of the nation of Israel. And Jesus renamed Simon into Peter, and Saul into Paul, and they were to establish his church. 
It's a sign of authority. And I remember my professor explaining, explaining to rename someone or to know their name is to hold authority over them. And now we have Jesus who has a name that no one knows, so no one has any authority over him. Simply put, no one has a hold on him. They don't wield authority over him. Satan has no dark secret to pull out over Jesus and to get a, a surprise win in the end. Jesus is unconquerable because he has a name that no one knows. He's untouchable. And then he has the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The unassailable name of Jesus. He is the King. He is the Lord. You know, much of what we get out of life depends on who we give authority to. Give authority to fear, and we live a life full of worry. We can let people take authority over us, and we might live a life of people-pleasing, or second-guessing, or depending on authority of others uh, who are just as flawed as we are. But Jesus grants in this moment for, the people, for people to exert authority, or to take authority, or to give authority. But we have the hope of knowing that final authority rests with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then the fourth name, the last name we'll talk about, it's the third name mentioned, is that Jesus is the Word of God. This is a very important title. It connects Jesus back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, reminding us of the power of this Word of God. You know, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 tell us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing, and without Him not anything was made that was made. Jesus is the Word. And He was there at the beginning, and now He is here at the end. He has the true authority to begin and end history. He is the only one that can be trusted with this task. He's the only one with the authority over this task. It's, an important, it's important for us to know that Jesus is the Word of God because this name also tells, also tells us how victory is won at the Battle of Armageddon. And that's the last big point I want to talk about today, because we talked about that Jesus brings ultimate victory, that uh, Jesus' names tell us the quality of that victory. He's faithful and true, and he has authority that's unassailable. But thirdly, the mouth of Jesus brings sudden and complete victory. The Word of God speaks victory, and the battle is won. I find the greatest comfort in the description of how Jesus is armed for the battle against his enemies. Verse 15 tells us that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Jesus is armed with the sword of his mouth. Jesus, the Word, who spoke creation into being, into existence, is armed with a word, a sword from his mouth. This is not the first place that Jesus is described this way. Back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus is described like this. In his right hand he had held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the, shining, like the sun shining at full strength. And then this word as a sword is, appears other places. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ephesians 6.17 talks about the armor of God that the Christian wears, and the only weapon we have wearing the armor of God is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 tells us about how Jesus wins against the beast. 
the lawlessness, the lawless one. We're told this in Second Thessalonians two eight, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, bringing to nothing at the appearance of his coming. Isaiah eleven four says this, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. I want to remind you of the story of Jesus and the centurion. The centurion sought out Jesus because his servant was sick and dying. And Jesus offered to come to the centurion's home. But he got this response from the centurion. So you can find it in Luke chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. It says, And Jesus went with them, but he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you. I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, turning to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. We easily forget the supreme authority of Jesus. Victory is not won through battle as we understand it, but the battle of Armageddon is over with a simple word from Jesus' mouth. That's how victory is won. I mean, we're given clues when we look at the army of heaven. It's right there in verse 14. We are told that they're dressed in fine linen. The army of heaven isn't dressed in armor. They're not wearing bulletproof vests or even riot gear. They're wearing fine linen. That's not what warriors dress in, I'd like to remind you. But they have no need to be dressed for hand-to-hand combat. I'd also like to point out that here in this description, we've read today verses 11 through 16 from Revelation 19. It's half of the battle of Armageddon, and this whole half of the battle is just describing Jesus. And this should tell us something about where the power is in that battle. And then if you go to Revelation 19, verses 19 and 20, we read about the battle of Armageddon, and it captures this authority of Jesus Perfectly. I want you to listen really carefully as you read these verses. Verse 19 starts, and it says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So there it is. The armies have gathered. They're ready to go. The battle's about to happen. And here's the battle. You start in verse 20, right where we just stopped reading. We pick right up and it says the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and all those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. There is no power on this earth, however mighty it might seem right now, that can stand a chance against Christ. And I'd say that this is true of whatever you face today. Whatever you're facing today, no matter how frustrating or terrible or cruel, none of it has the power to take victory from Jesus. Do not let your current circumstances take the victory that you have in Jesus away from you. We are called to persevere. And so the question I have for you today is, will you join in this victory?
This morning, I want to give you an invitation to enter into the victory of Jesus. If, If you've been living under defeat, if you've been living without hope, I invite you to join in the victory, into the hope. For the one who's not a Christian, I want to invite you today to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. See, Romans 10.9 tells us very simply, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But for the Christian, for the one who already has received Jesus, I would call and invite you to grab onto the description of Jesus, our champion, that white rider standing at the open door of heaven. Grab onto it. Do not let go. Be stubborn about it. You know, what is it that people are looking for in this world? They're looking for peace, contentment, completeness, happiness. But more than that, we all know that peace is easily broken. Contentment is often interrupted. And most everyone lives in pursuit of a completeness that seems like it's always one step ahead of us. For the Christian, we have hope for final victory once and for all. The Christian should have what everybody else is looking for. Hope. Hold on to that hope. The hope of this victory when all else has gone wrong in life. Hear Romans 15.13 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let us pray. Most loving Father, you will us to give thanks for all things, to dread nothing but the loss of you, and to cast all all of our who we are on the one who cares for us. Preserve us from faithless fears and the world's anxieties. Grant that no clouds of this mortal life may hide us from the light of love which is immortal and which you've manifested unto us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Go with Jesus.